0: we're going to take our bibles out tonight and we're going to turn to acts chapter number 15 tonight acts chapter 15 and i trust that as we are going through the book of acts not only are you learning some things that can apply to your life but i hope that you are seeing a pattern of the early church as a, an example uh, to us here in this local new testament church that we will be the church that god wants us to be and tonight We are in Acts chapter number 15 in our Bibles. And real quickly, just to get us caught up to where we're at, in chapter 13 and chapter 14, we got to go through the first missionary journey with Paul. Remember, he had a partner with him for the first missionary journey. You might remember that. It was Paul and Barnabas. Remember, they had John Mark with them uh, for a time as well. And they traveled to various cities They got to see God do some uh, wonderful things, and that was in chapter 13 and chapter number 14. Well, right after, we're going to get to chapter 15 tonight, the first few verses of this uh, chapter. Uh, In chapter number 15 of the book of Acts, right after the first missionary journey came to an end, uh, remember at the end of chapter number 14, just to get us caught up to where we're at, the end of chapter 14... They they all came back to Antioch. Remember, Antioch was the church that was established in Acts chapter number 11. Antioch was the church that sent out Paul and Barnabas to go on this missionary journey. Well, after the missionary journey was complete, they came back to Antioch, and the Bible tells us they give a report there in Antioch of the work the Lord had done in saving souls, in saving the souls of the Gentiles. Matter of fact, if we would look back to the end of chapter 14, if you look at the end of verse 27, which is at the end of the chapter, it says that they reported and rehearsed all that the Lord had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there, meaning Antioch, they abode long time with uh, the disciples, the Bible tells us. That's Paul and Barnabas after this first missionary journey. So they came back and they had reported and rehearsed to all that were there at Antioch what the Lord did in opening the door of faith for the Gentiles to receive the gospel. Now, we're in Acts chapter 15 tonight, but in your mind, would you real quickly try to go back, and I'm going to try to help you with this, try to go back to Acts chapter 10 for a moment. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 10? Some of you may be familiar with it right away. I'll try to help you to remember what happened in Acts chapter number 10. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter, the Bible tells us, had a vision of a sheet. Do you remember that? And the sheet was being lowered down from heaven, and on it, it had all kinds of animals that Peter would immediately look at as being unclean animals, animals that I cannot eat. And remember, as that sheet was being lowered, and then it, this, this happened several times, remember there was a, a, a command for Peter to take and eat. All right, so I'm trying to get, get your mind to where, where we're at in Acts 10 so that it'll help us here with Acts 15. We need to remember what happened in Acts 10 to help us with Acts 15. And so Peter, seeing what was on those, that sheet, uh, of course, in his heart, I can't take and eat those animals because I've always been taught as a Jewish person, that those are unclean animals. And remember the the words that were given to Peter, that which God has called clean, don't refer to it as unclean, right? You remember that with the sheet that came down from heaven? Well, shortly after that, Peter, understanding what God was trying to teach him about the Gentiles. See, the, the, the Jewish... the the Jewish believers, they would go out and they would share the gospel with Jewish believers, but they didn't believe that the gospel was open for for the Gentiles to become believers. And so they refrained from sharing the gospel message with the Gentiles. But God was trying to let them know this same message that is open to the Jewish people is open to the Gentiles as well. And remember Peter traveled to the house of a man named Cornelius? And then Cornelius had already gathered up people in his house to be able to hear this message that he knew was coming from Peter. And the Gentiles believed. And they put their faith and trust in the Lord. And so there was the conversion of this man, this Gentile man named Cornelius, that took place in Acts chapter number 10. Now, because of this, because of what happened in Acts chapter number 10, one would think that the acceptance of Gentiles into the church would be a certain thing. Not only that, the fact that because Peter had this vision and he saw this sheet with these animals and he went and he shared the gospel with Cornelius and Cornelius got saved, not only would the church accept Gentile believers into the church and that would be a certain thing, but they would also do it without requiring compliance to the Mosaic law. We would think this would be a certain thing because of what happened in Acts chapter number 10. But when we pick up here in Acts chapter 15, there is still a debate that is taking place. Even though Peter back in Acts chapter 10 knew as he shared the gospel with Cornelius that the gospel is now open to the Gentiles, even though that took place shortly as we pick up here in Acts chapter 15, shortly after uh, after Paul's first missionary journey, The problem arises again. And the Bible tells us Paul had seen a large number of Gentile people saved during his missionary journey. And they were wondering if these Gentile people were truly saved. Have they truly been saved because they are Gentile people? Have they truly trusted Christ? Again, when we look back to, or when we think in our minds back to Acts chapter 10, we would think this debate would have been settled, right? The debate's settled. The gospel's open for Jewish people. It's open for Gentile people as well. But the problem that exists here when we move into Acts chapter number 15 is that it was obvious that it would only be a matter of time before the Gentiles would be the majority in the church and the Jewish believers, they didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that the Gentiles were gonna be the majority of what the church was made up of And so they were questioning whether these Jewish people, or excuse me, these Gentile people were really truly believers at all. And so we're going to pick up in verse number one, and I want us to notice three things tonight in the passage of scripture that we're going to look at here in Acts chapter 15. I want us to notice three things. The first thing I want you to notice is the allegation that is made. There's an allegation that is made against Paul Paul and Barnabas because of their first missionary journey that they take. Notice in verse number one, if you would. This is Acts chapter 15 and verse number one. Let's notice number one, the allegation. Notice verse one. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. They're debating, saying these Gentile believers, these people that we are assuming are Gentile believers that we're hearing about from this missionary journey cannot really be believers because they have not been circumcised after the manner of Moses, so therefore they cannot be saved. This is the allegation that is made. Would you skip a few verses and would you go down to verse number five? Skip a few verses and go down to verse number five. The Bible says this. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, So these were believers. The Bible tells these were believers, but they just didn't believe that the Gentiles were believers. So they were Pharisees that were believers, but they didn't realize, they didn't believe it was possible for these Gentiles to be believers. So notice what it says that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So what are they doing here? The Bible tells us they are questioning the salvation of every single Gentile that Paul and Barnabas have ministered to uh, during their first missionary journey. Now, we would pause here for just a moment and say in our hearts, here's what I truly believe we would think as a Christian. We would say, They should be rejoicing in what God had done, right? I mean, we're hearing about the great uh, work that God has done in all of these cities. We should be rejoicing in what what God has done through the missionary journey. And they should have realized that the salvation of the Gentile people was really just unfolding the, the plan of God. God had a plan for Jewish people to be saved. He had a plan for Gentile people to be saved, right? So they should be rejoicing in all of this and saying, we're just thrilled at the fact that people have believed, that they have put their faith in the Lord, and this is just revealing or fulfilling God's plan and His purpose in redemption, that Jewish people would be saved and that Gentile people would be saved as well. But that is not what they are doing at all. The Bible said instead there's an allegation that's made. Notice the two two statements that are made in these verses that we just read. Would you look at verse number one again? I want you to notice number one. They said that these Gentile believers, these Gentiles who, again, claimed to be believers, had to, number one, be circumcised in order to be saved. Look at verse one again. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised. After the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. What are they saying there? They're saying unless these Gentile people have been circumcised, they're not able to give a testimony of being saved. Now, God had made a covenant with Abraham, hadn't he? And part of that covenant that God had made with Abraham included circumcision for the Jews, didn't it? So Jewish believers, according to this covenant that God had made with Abraham, were to be circumcised. And so it was so important for the Jewish Christians that they wanted the new Gentile Christians to do the same. We've been circumcised as Jewish believers, and so now we believe that the only way that you can be saved is if you follow this command, this covenant, that God has given to Abraham for Jewish people to be circumcised, you have to do it as well. So what were these Jewish believers really, in essence, doing? Think about this. As we've read the verse here, what are they really, in essence, doing? They are telling the Gentile believers that they have to become Jews in order to be saved. You have to follow the pattern that God has given for a Jewish person in order to be saved. So number one, they say they had to be circumcised. But would you look down at verse number five again? Now, I know we already read it, but notice the second thing that they say. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them. We've already established that one. But notice the second one. And to command them to keep the law of Moses. So number one, they believed that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. But number two, you have to obey the law in order to be saved. So what were the Jewish believers really telling the Gentile believers? They were saying that faith in Christ alone was not enough. Just putting your faith in Jesus. You've heard Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus, but that is not enough. Matter of fact, that's the way many preach today, don't they? Many that we would say are false teachers are part of what we would call cults today. They preach that way, don't they? They would say it this way. This is the simplest way for us to say it. They would say that Jesus is part of the way. You have to add something to it. He's only part of the way. And that's exactly what these Jewish believers were saying to those who, again, they felt claimed to be Gentile believers. You have to obey the law as well. Faith in God alone is not enough. Now, can I say something that we would want to make application of as we're reading this passage of Scripture tonight, when we see this allegation that is made? It would be unscriptural. For us to apply, imply, so this applies to every one of us tonight. It would be unscriptural, it would be completely contrary the, to the Bible for us to imply that a work or a deed from somebody would bring about their salvation or would bring, would bring to them a greater degree of God's love. You can't come to God by faith alone. But it would be unscriptural for us to say that, but to say that you have to add something to that. You have to add a work or a deed in order to have salvation or in order to have a greater degree of God's love. Is that what the Bible teaches? Of course not. We read it this morning, didn't we? For by grace are you saved through faith. Plus nothing and minus nothing. Jesus says, the way. Not a way, not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus and him alone. The Bible teaches us in Titus chapter three and verse number five, it says these words, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What's the Bible teaching us there? We can't add anything to it, right? It's not by the works that I do but according to God's mercy that I have the opportunity to go to heaven. So we would say it this way, it's grace and grace alone, isn't it? Well, an allegation was made, but number two, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the assessment. So we see number one, the allegation, but number two, I want you to notice the assessment. Now we're going to get Paul and Barnabas involved here now. Can you imagine, can you imagine (laughs) the, the, uh, the, 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 the step that was made for these men right after Paul and Barnabas had come back from this missionary journey. I mean, how dare they say, you're coming back here giving testimony to all these people that are saved and we don't even believe they're saved. How dare they, right? I mean, it would be like, it would be like me a couple months ago coming back from Cambodia and say, hey, we saw a great mighty work for the Lord and we saw several souls saved at the, at the missionary, uh, or at the medical mission that we did. Well... I don't know if I believe that. I mean, can you imagine to have these men come back with the excitement and joy that's in their heart after what they got to see on this missionary journey and somebody to say, all those Gentiles that you say that believe, they didn't really believe. That's where Paul and Barnabas are going to get involved here. They're going to speak up for what has happened on these missionary journeys and we're going to notice number two, the assessment they're going to assess everything that they've gotten to experience on this missionary journey. Would you look at verse number 2? When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they de- determined. Now I'm going to I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read all of these verses and then we're going to come back to some of these. Notice it says they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And they brought on their way by the church, excuse me, and and being brought, I'm sorry, on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church, And of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, would you skip down to verse 6? So here's the assessment of everything. Look at verse number 6. And the apostles and elders, that's the apostles and elders that are in Jerusalem now. Remember, pause just for a moment. And you might remember that the church in Jerusalem was really the church that started all of this, right? We know that the, the, really the headquarters of what we would say was the beginning of the early church and the local church was that church planted right there in Jerusalem. Remember, there were 3,000 saved and baptized on the same day there at the day of Pentecost. And this church in Jerusalem was established. Well, the Bible tells the Jerusalem apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. All right, there's an assessment that is going to be made here. The Bible tells us in verse number two. Now, I hope you'll get all of this this evening. I know the Lord really encouraged my heart as I studied through this. Look at verse two. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. Notice here, Paul and Barnabas have, this is the easiest way for us to word this. They have a difference of opinion. All right, you tell us that the Gentile individuals that we saw saved at the... uh, during our first missionary journey in all of these cities, you're trying to tell us they're not believers? Paul and Barnabas say, we uh, beg to differ. Well, there's a difference of opinion here. You feel as if they're not believers. We feel that they have trusted Christ as as their Savior. And so the Bible tells us there's a dissension that takes place. And then there's a disputation that is taking place amongst them, which means it leads to even a debate that starts to stir up here. Almost really leaning on the line or leaning on the word of an argument that's taking place here. They're they're disagreeing with one another. By the way, we'll say this by by way of a side thought, something we ought to remember in our lives by way of application tonight. We cannot agree with one another when there is a doctrinal error that exists. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say on that. The church is supposed to be in unity We're supposed to always be in unity, but we will not be in unity if there is a doctrinal error that exists. It's impossible as a church to have a doctrinal error that exists and be in unity. We will not agree if there's a doctrinal error involved, will Will we? The Bible says this in the book of Amos. It says, can two walk together except they be agreed? The idea here is God wants us to be in agreement, God wants us to be in a spirit of unity. He wants us always to be that way. But we cannot be in agreement when a doctrinal error exists. Can I say this? This is exactly what the enemy wants. The enemy wants us to have this spirit of controversy. He wants us to have this spirit of disagreement. And he uses this as a weapon against the church. Do you think the enemy that that we face, the devil, do you think he wants us to be in unity here at Victory Baptist Church? Not a chance. He wants there always to be controversy or some type of a disagreement in the church. But I want you to take note of something. And this is maybe something that encouraged my heart more than any as I studied through this text, getting this ready for you tonight. This encouraged my heart maybe more than anything. When dissension... And disputation is taking place as we see here in uh, the early part of chapter number 15. Did you notice that no other work is being done while this is happening? Are there souls being saved while this is going on? We're not reading about that, are we? We're not reading about anybody coming to know Jesus as their Savior. We're not reading about the starting of a second missionary journey, although we'll read about that later. But we're not reading about that now, are we? Now, why is that? See, all that's been put on pause because there's a disagreement. There's a dissension. Would you agree with me? That's what the enemy wants. He wants us to be stuck in this place where we've got some kind of controversy going on, some kind of um, disagreement going on, so that we're not going on for God. He wants that to be a weapon that he uses against the church. Now, mind you, I will pause here to say a minute, that truth does need to be defended, though. Paul and Barnabas are doing the right thing here. Truth must be defended. If we are to be faithful with the responsibility of the gospel that God has given to us, we must stand for the purity of the gospel. We would say it this way. We must stand in defense of the gospel. So yes, there are times in which we have to say, yes, we have to take a stand And even though there's controversy, even though there's some disagreement going on, we have to defend the gospel. Look at the end of verse number 2, if you would. The Bible says at the end of verse number 2, Paul, uh, excuse me, uh, or they determined, I'm sorry, the middle part of verse 2, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them, and when he says in that verse, certain other of them, it means certain of the others that were gathered there in Antioch. So remember, Antioch was that headquarters, that church that had sent out Paul and Barnabas to this mission work, and they were the ones that they had come back, Antioch was the city they had come back and reported in, right? So he says, Paul and Barnabas and others of them, he says, should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas are unable, this is what the Bible's trying to teach us here, Paul and Barnabas are unable to convince the false teachers, So because they're unable to convince the false teachers, the church arranges for them, again, along with some people from Antioch there, to go up to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem was the starting point of all this. We just said that a minute ago. That was the starting point of the early church. We read about it in Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost took place. And those souls that were saved and added to the church, baptized, added to the church. And so they arranged for them to go up to Jerusalem For the apostles and the elders, you'll notice in verse 6, we we just read that a minute ago, the apostles and elders were going to come together and they were going to consider this matter. They were going to try to help solve this controversy. They are going to try to resolve things, work together to get this resolved. Notice what happens on the way, though. So So they've determined that we're going to have to send them up to Jerusalem to get this question figured out, the answer to this question figured out. We can't figure it out here, so we're going to have to figure it out there in Jerusalem. And on the way, notice what happens on the way. Now, I know we already read it, but look at verse 3 again, if you would. Verse 3. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And notice the response there. It caused great joy unto all the brethren. So what happens on their way to Jerusalem? Well, the Bible tells they stopped by these two cities, Phoenicia and Samaria. What do they do when they get there? They rehearse to them and they report to them about their missionary journey. And they tell them, hey, there were some souls that were saved. And I mean, these were Gentiles that are believers and they're excited about the things of the Lord. And what does the Bible say the believers there in Phoenicia and Samaria do? Notice it says, there's great joy. There's great joy amongst all the brethren because of this report that was taking place. This They were delighting, we could say it this way, The believers are delighting over the results of people being saved. Now, there's an application for us, right? We should always be excited when somebody gets saved. I mean, when somebody trusts Christ as Savior, that should be the loudest amen we hear in the building, right? Hey, we got a soul saved this morning. Praise the Lord, right? We're excited about that. I tried to share that with the teenagers when we were at the winter retreat. I know sometimes with teenagers, it is difficult. It is challenging in front of your peers to make a decision for Jesus. That's just tough. And I tried to tell them at the retreat, if you're not saved here and you trust Jesus as your Savior, I told them, I promise you, everyone here is going to be rejoicing. We're going to be excited about it. And that's the way the church should be today, right? We have somebody that gets saved. We are excited. We are rejoicing over it. And it brings great joy, doesn't it? Number one, don't ever get over your salvation. Always be excited about the fact that you got saved. For no matter what age we are in here, if you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, just rejoice in the fact that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. But then let's never get over the fact that others are getting saved around us as well. Man, let's rejoice in that. And try to see these people that are getting saved growing in the Lord as well. Well, then they get to Jerusalem. I want you to notice a couple of things that I believe we can make application of here. When they get to Jerusalem, would you look at verse 4 quick? Verse 4, and when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them. Notice when they get to Jerusalem, they are welcomed. They are welcomed when they get to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple of different ways that the, city, uh, that, the, excuse me, that the church in Jerusalem could handle this. The church in Jerusalem could say, well, we're going to demonstrate pride and we are going to refuse to consider any differing opinions. If you've got a differing opinion, then you might as well not bring it to us. We don't want to hear anything about it. But the Bible tells us the leaders of that church did what they should have done. They brought everybody together And they discussed the problem so that they could reach a conclusion. The application for us is simply this tonight. We need to address issues in a biblical manner. See, that is the way they handled it. And by the way, that's the way a church will stay in unity. If we address issues in a biblical manner, not trying to find a group over here to the side to say, let's talk about something that went on at the church. Let's discuss it. And let's see if our little group can find out what we all to do. No, we address problems in a biblical manner. Problems are dealt with openly, right? And we try to discuss them so that there can be always constantly unity in the church. Aren't you thankful to see the pattern of this early church? That they're doing what God wants them to do. So they bring everybody together, they welcome everybody to come, and they say, instead of having pride And instead of just refusing to see your opinion as opposed to this person's opinion, we're going to come together and we're going to try to find a way we can resolve this. Well, the Bible tells us that's exactly what takes place. The last thought I want to give you tonight is this. We saw the allegation. There were some allegations that were made against these supposed Gentile believers, which we believe were believers, but they, of course, assumed that they had to add works to something, to to their salvation. So there was an allegation that was made and then there was an assessment. But the last thing I want you to notice tonight is this, the agreement. I want us to notice the agreement. Isn't it good when we can get to a place where we agree on something? You know, there was a man that stood up and he took a leadership role in the church there in Jerusalem and his name's Peter. Let's read about him for a few minutes here to finish our message. Would you look at verse number seven? I want to go through these verses quickly. Verse number seven. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said it to them, all right, now here's the leader that Peter is. By the way, Peter was known for this, wasn't he? He was known for being the one that always spoke up. You, you may remember uh, sometime back in, on, on our Wednesday night Bible studies, we were studying through the lives of the disciples. Some of you may have been here for that. And we studied through the life of, this was a while back now, but we studied on Wednesday night all 12 of the disciples. And we took their lives and we really, really in detail studied their lives. And we talked about Peter, and what did we always say about Peter? He was always the one that would open his mouth, wouldn't he? And he would stand up and just say what should be said. And here he, as a leader, stands up and says what should be said. Look at what he says, verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, now notice some things he says here. Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. All right, verse number seven. What is Peter saying? Remember back in Acts chapter 10? What happened back in Acts chapter 10? See, I purposely already discussed it tonight so we can remember what Peter is talking about here in verse seven. What happened in, in chapter 10? A sheet comes down. It's got those animals on it. And what did God tell Peter? He lets him know. What's the lesson God's trying to tell him? The gospel is open to the Gentiles. And that's what Peter's saying here in verse number seven. He, it's almost Peter's way of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Haven't we already discussed this? <laughs> I mean, hasn't this been something we've already settled? Matter of fact, it's really Peter's way of saying, we don't even need to settle it. God's already settled it for us. He's already answered this debate for us. He already has the answer. He's the final judge, isn't he? And his judgment has already been passed. His judgment has already been made. And Peter, it was Peter's way of saying that God has already chosen me, again, some time ago, back to Acts chapter 10, God had already chosen Peter to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the gospel and they could believe. Now look at verse number 8, if you would. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So what is Peter trying to say here? He's he's saying that as an evidence of the fact that Gentile people truly were believers, God gave to them the same thing he gave us, which is what? The Holy Spirit. See, when the Gentiles, excuse me, when the Jewish believers believed, what were they given? They were given the Holy Spirit, What happened when the Gentile believers believed? In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and all of those that were gathered up when they believed, what does the Bible say? The Bible says they were given the Holy Spirit. So they were given the Holy Spirit as a witness to this very thing, that they had now become a child of God. The Holy Spirit was a sign of God's complete acceptance of Gentiles because they had put their faith in Christ alone. It wasn't a sign of something that they did. It was a sign of something God had done for them. He had saved them because they put their faith in Him, and as a result, He had given them the Holy Spirit. So I like what Peter says next. We're almost done now. Look at verse number 9. Verse number 9, he says this, "...and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith." I love what Peter says here. Here's what he says there's no difference between the Gentiles and the Jews when it comes to the gospel. Now, at Victory Baptist Church, we believe the same thing, don't we? It doesn't matter who steps in this door. Where they're from. My wife and I met a lady just yesterday, and she had told us that she had come here from Africa. It doesn't matter who steps in these doors. Everyone that steps in the doors of our church or everybody that God gives us an opportunity to witness to, we don't care what their color is. We don't care what their race is. We don't care where they've come from or what their background is or even what their religious background is. We see them as a soul, don't we? And a soul that needs Jesus. A soul that Jesus died for. A soul that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. He's saying there's no difference at all. I love the little child song that we sang: red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. It doesn't matter what color again we are, what skin we have, where we're from. There's no difference. And he says that about the Gentiles and he says that about the Jewish people. And he says that the same way we were saved by the fact that God, notice what he says at the end of verse number nine, purified our hearts by faith. What a way to talk about salvation. That's a good way to describe salvation, right? I like the way he says that at the end of verse number nine. What happened when you got saved? God purified your heart, didn't he? Man, that's good. He purified your heart. He cleansed your old, filthy, sinful heart. And how did he do it? By something you did? No, by something he did. You just had to put your faith in him, Right? So it says at the end of verse number nine, purifying their hearts by faith, the same way he purified our hearts when we put our faith in him is the same way God purifies the hearts of the Gentiles. But go on because it gets better as we finish here tonight. Look at verse ten. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck? Excuse me, the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. You say, all right, well, wait a minute. Describe for me. What's he trying to say here in verse number 10? He's saying that Gentile believers should not be under the burden of the yoke of the law, just like Jewish people would not have been able to keep the law. They came to God by grace, He's saying we shouldn't expect the Gentile people to have to come under the burden of the yoke of the law. We didn't do it. We weren't able to bear it as Jewish people and the Gentile people are not able to bear it either. So the thought that Peter is trying to express here is that we can't add something to God's salvation. It can't be by grace, through faith, plus works. Because if we try to work by following the law, he's saying it's the burden of a yoke that we can't bear. We can't bear it. Jewish people can't bear it and Gentile people are not able to bear it either. And by the way, according to what we read in the book of Matthew, God doesn't want us to have a burdensome yoke anyway, does he? He says in Matthew chapter number 11, he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In verse number 30, he says these words, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The idea is this, it's not burdensome to serve God, is it? It's not something that's burdensome to serve the Lord. He says, my yoke is easy. Peter's trying to say, don't put a burden of a yoke of the law on somebody that they are not able to bear. God did not make the Jewish people bear that burden, and He's not going to make the Gentile people bear that burden either. There's one passage of Scripture that I came across as I was studying that I wanted to share with you really quick. We are almost done, but I wanted to share this with you really quick. If you would take your Bible for just a moment and you would turn to Matthew 23... There's a teaching here in Matthew 23 that I want to show you really quickly as Jesus describes for us the scribes and the Pharisees. And he uses this illustration of the scribes and the Pharisees to perfectly parallel what we are hearing here in Acts chapter number 15. Remember what we're hearing now in Acts chapter number 15. Jewish people didn't have to bear the burden of the yoke of the law and Gentile people shouldn't have to bear it either. We shouldn't look as Jewish people and say, well, we don't have to bear that burden, but you do. That's what Peter's saying here. Well, look at the way the scribes and the Pharisees looked at things. This is Matthew 23 and verse number one. It says this, then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. By the way, anytime you see Jesus speaking to his disciples, he's trying to teach them something. He's trying to give them an example here. He's trying to let them know that I'm going to tell you something about the scribes and the Pharisees that you can learn from. We talked about it a little bit this morning in our Sunday school class. We talked about how that Jesus was, in our Sunday school class this morning, we talked about how that Jesus was standing near the tra- sitting near the treasury and he was watching people put their money in. Remember that lady that came out of her poverty and she put in everything that she had? And then Jesus, the Bible says, calls his disciples over. And he says, I want to teach you something from what I just saw. See, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to teach his disciples a lesson from what they can learn from the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice what they can learn. Verse number two, he says this, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Notice verse three. All therefore whatsoever they, they, they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. See, this is what Peter's trying to say here in Acts chapter number 15. Let's not say to them that they have to bear a burden that we have not borne ourselves. We're not going to say something that we were not able to do ourselves. But then I'll finish with verse 4 if you're still here in Matthew 23. Look at verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Have you ever noticed that when you read through Scripture, there are statements that we make in our world today and our our language today that have come from Scripture? Have you ever heard somebody make the phrase, well, they won't even lift a finger to help? You ever heard that one? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying the scribes and Pharisees, oh, they'll put burdens on other people, but they won't lift a finger to do anything themselves. So they got a lot of speech. They got a lot of talk, but there's not a whole lot of action on their end. See, that's exactly what Peter's saying in Acts chapter number 15. He's saying we cannot expect the Gentile people to bear a burden and, and, and be under the yoke of a burden that God did not expect us to be under. That's exactly what he's teaching here. Now go back and we're gonna read two more verses and we'll be done. Acts chapter number 15. Look with me if you would at verse number 11 because this is the spot of this passage where we come to an agreement. We come to an agreement. Remember, there were some allegations that were made. And then there was this great assessment that was made. All right, we got to figure out what's going on here. And then the Bible tells us there's this great, grand, and glorious agreement at the end of the passage of Scripture. Look at what it says in verse number 11, if you would. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... We shall be saved even as they. So what is Paul saying here? It's by grace that we got saved. And it's by grace that we believe they got saved as well. Plus nothing, minus nothing, just grace. Not grace and works. Not Jesus plus something else. But just by grace through faith. And then notice what happens in verse 12. Then all the multitude, what are the next two words, kept silence. See, they've been silenced by what Peter has said. And the Bible says they even give audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders of God had, and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. The Bible tells us they come to an agreement of what they had heard. All right, we agree. The solution is the The decision is that the Gentiles got saved by grace through faith just the same way we did. They don't have to be circumcised according to Abraham's covenant. They don't have to add obedience to the law to that because God didn't make us do that. And so we are in agreement that is the solution. Now there's something else I want you real quickly to notice in verse 12. Did you notice that the Bible tells us that Barnabas and Paul declared some miracles that God had wrought? Have you ever wondered, as we've studied through the book of Acts, because I believe we have the answer to it right here. Have you ever wondered, as we're studying through the book of Acts, why God, what is God's divine purpose in these miracles that these guys are performing? Now, they're not performing them. They're performing them through God's power, right? We're seeing God use these men to perform miracles through the power of God. But have you ever wondered what God's divine purpose for these miracles are? Well, here he clearly lets us know that one of his divine purposes behind these wonders and miracles that people have been able to give testimony of is that he's using these miracles to confirm his work in the hearts of those who have believed in him. He's using his miracles, he's using these miracles that have been done to confirm his blessings on the teaching and preaching of not only Paul, but also Peter, the man who's speaking here in this passage of Scripture. God was able to use Peter to do some great miracles, wasn't he? Through God's power now. He also has used Paul and Barnabas to be able to see some great miracles done. So what's the divine purpose in all of that? So that he can confirm... This is, this is done through me. The only way this can be done is through the power of the Lord. Can I say this? If we don't believe that to be true, then let's think of the opposite of this. We've got these false teachers who stood up and said, well, we have to add circumcision. We have to add obedience to the law to their salvation in order for them to truly be saved. Let me say this. God never confirmed false doctrine or false teaching with miracles, did he? Those false teachers weren't able to step up and perform miracles. So God's divine purpose in those miracles is to confirm the teaching and the preaching and the ministry and the decisions of those that have trusted Jesus Christ through the works of Paul and Peter in the book of Acts. Now we're gonna close with the first part of verse 13. It says, and after they had held their peace. Again, we're in agreement. Okay, we're in agreement. Don't have to add works. It's only salvation by grace through faith. And by the way, that's the same today, isn't it? Salvation is by grace through faith. Nothing you have to add. Jesus is the only way. Not him plus somebody else, but we're rejoicing in the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. We noticed tonight an allegation that was made by the way, through some false teachers, some false doctrine. But then the assessment is they assess everything that God has done and they come to an agreement that God has saved by grace through faith. Now, when we preach a message like this, I know I sprinkle in the message several applications. I don't know what way God may have spoken to your heart tonight, but I believe he can use a verse-by-verse Bible study through one of the books of the Bible to speak to our hearts. And so maybe some, in some way, God spoke to your heart through what you're seeing here in the early church. And so maybe tonight, right before we leave, as we do on Sunday night, we'll have an invitation. God uses the preaching to speak to us, and then the invitation is our turn to speak to him.